I was always hard on myself and I was quite driven in that whatever I was doing, I wanted to do quite well at it. There was a huge identity shift that occurred for me, which was I had attached a lot of my self-worth to external benchmarks. So, you know, what grade did I get? What job offers did I get? And for me, when I was sick, I had to totally, I really had to actually recognise that there was value in me regardless of what my job was. And the real break was that Marina said to me, look, I know you've got two little children and I know that finding childcare is a nightmare. I'd really like us to think about how we could make the job work for you. And she said, I know you'll be able to do this role, but I also know it might need to look a bit different. You know, bringing a baby home, it's such a, I mean, it just literally your world is turned on its head and it doesn't matter how many people tell you before that, nothing can prepare you for it. You just have to live it. For mums in particular, it's really difficult to maintain attachment to paid work. And if you're not attached to paid work, you've got no super, you've got fewer options. And that's why we've got, you know, women over 55 in Australia, it's the fastest growing group of Australians who experience homelessness. Georgie Dent is a busy woman. She's a journalist, author, speaker, advocate, former lawyer, and a mother of three. She's also the executive director of The Parenthood, a not-for-profit advocacy group on a mission to make Australia the best place in the world to be a parent. Now, the person I've just described might sound pretty close to perfect, but Georgie has not coasted through life without her challenges. And in her best-selling memoir, Breaking Badly, Georgie documents her decline towards a total breakdown that saw her admitted to a psychiatric hospital at just 24 years old. Here, we talk the balancing act that is being a working mother, writing and living through Breaking Badly, and her work as a passionate advocate for working parents. I'm Lucinda. This is Ready or Not. And here is the impressive and inspiring Georgie Dent. Georgie, thank you so much for being here. Can you please start by briefly introducing yourself and your family? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So my name is Georgie Dent and I am a mother of three. We have got three girls who are currently aged 6, 10 and 12. Um, So we're just finishing the first year with all kids at school. Amazing. And from what I can see, you've always been quite a high achiever, but you had a really big experience that sort of changed all of this for you. Before we get into what happened to you at the age of 24, can you tell us a bit about early adulthood, Georgie, and what her aspirations were? Look, I mean, I guess I would not describe myself as someone who's always been a high achiever, but what I would say is that I was always really hard on myself and I was Mm. quite driven to sort of do well. Early adult Georgie, I actually didn't really know exactly what I wanted to be doing. I'd studied law and business and I'd actually, I I preferred studying law and I sort of did better in that than I did in business, which ended up taking me down a sort of legal career pathway, which is not what I've ended up doing. But um, I certainly wasn't someone who at 22 or 23 had a really clear vision of what exactly I wanted to do. Yeah. And so then you do have this really big experience at 24 that leads you to end up in a psychiatric ward. There's an amazing book about it, which we will get to next. But firstly, can you tell us a bit about that experience? 
So when I was 24, I was working at one of um, a big corporate law firm here in Sydney and I was doing their graduate program and I'd been there for about 18 months. And when I was 19, I'd been diagnosed with two chronic health conditions. Um, I was diagnosed, they were diagnosed about a month apart, but I had quite severe endometriosis, which required a fair bit of surgery. And then I was also diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And so those two issues were sort of in the background. And while I was studying at uni, I was sort of able to maintain my health and my mm. study. Um, and I still, you know, I, I worked part-time as well, but once I moved to Sydney and was working full-time, managing my health became much more difficult because mm -hmm. I was working long hours and there was just nowhere to really hide in the week. And I was quite unwell. I sort of got progressively more and more sick. And so the version of me just before I had really a nervous breakdown that led to me moving back at home, back home to Lismore in northern New South Wales with my parents for four months, I was really unwell physically and mentally. And I ended up having to have an extended break from work. I had this terrible vertigo. No one could tell us what was wrong. And mm. eventually I ended up in a psychiatric hospital, which was the best place for me because I was, um, that's where I needed to be. I was really unwell mentally and physically. And so that was a really big turning point in my life because I sort of realized that as I said, I was always hard on myself and I was quite driven in that whatever I was doing, I wanted to do quite well at it. Mm -hmm. But I certainly wasn't, I hadn't had this drive that I desperately wanted to build a career in law. I didn't mm -hmm. really know what I wanted, but that nervous breakdown forced me to kind of reevaluate a lot of things. And to begin with, I just realized I wasn't going to be able to work full time until I got my health back on track. And so I didn't really work in a professional environment for almost 12 months. And I just used that time really to recover um, and then sort of rebuild. So it was a very, there was sort of, you know, I guess it is a before and after kind of life event for me. There was, there was a really clear distinction. A lot changed because of that. And in motherhood, we talk a lot about identity shifts, but that must have been a huge time for your identity too, because you had to take a break from the workforce. You'd been studying hard and then working hard. How did that recovery sit with you in terms of self-compassion and letting yourself heal, essentially? I had not shown myself any self-compassion, mm. basically my whole life, which was one of those things that when I was in the um, psychiatric hospital, in addition to seeing a psychiatrist and being put on medication, you know, I was seeing a psychologist every day. Um, there would, you know, it was sort of like lifting the lid, like lifting the bonnet on a car and mm. checking on what was going on. And that was really what that time in hospital was like for me in a sense, yeah. because it was a pause and I had to kind of examine all of this stuff and the stories that I'd been telling myself and I had not shown myself any compassion mm. And yes, there was a huge identity shift that occurred for me, which was I had attached a lot of my self-worth to external benchmarks. Mm. So, you know, what grade did I get? What job offers did I get? And for me, when I was sick, I really had to actually recognize that there was value in me regardless of what my job was. And that was a huge shift for me. But I, I actually think that then a couple of years later when, when we had our first child, it actually had, it put me in a much stronger position because I had gone through that 
transition of really moving mm-hmm. away from my professional identity is not my whole identity. Yeah. And sort of having to unpack yourself because that happens a lot in motherhood. But for a lot of us, if we've sort of coasted through life quite luckily without, you know, any big adversities, that's probably the first time we're really looking at ourselves and reassessing things. And I love what you say about lifting the carb on it because it's almost like we've all got things in there that need work and need reflection, but it's not until something breaks down that we actually do it. And so then in 2019, you write a best-selling memoir. I think it needed to be reprinted 24 hours later. Can you firstly tell us about writing about something so deeply personal? And also then just from a point of view of being a mother and trying to write a book at that time. Yeah. So when I left rehab and I ended up moving back to Sydney, I gradually rebuilt my life. I worked at David Jones selling clothes just as a, and I should say I was young enough that I didn't have sort of financial obligations. So I was quite able to just um, take that time. And I was also incredibly privileged to have family who were able to sort of take me in and look after me. Mm. But when I was sort of well enough to rejoin the workforce in a sort of professional sense, I ended up getting a job at a business magazine. Initially, it was just a research contract for three months, but I had always been interested in journalism and sort of storytelling and writing. And it just worked out that that was where I ended up getting a sort of my next professional break. And I absolutely loved working at that magazine. Um, And I was working as a legal reporter which sort of fit because I'd had the professional experience, you know, briefly, but as, as a lawyer, but really because of that, I, I, I was writing more and more. Um, and then my husband and I moved overseas for two years because he was offered a scholarship to study overseas. And we ended up having our first child over there. Oh, wow. But while we were there, I had started writing a little bit. I wrote what had happened to me and it was the first time I'd written it. And I actually sent it to Mia Friedman, who at the time, Mamma Mia was literally just a blog. You know, it was, I think there was one other person with her at the point that I'd sent it through, but it was literally a blog. That's amazing to think now. I know. Um, and I said, look, this is a piece I want to, I've written this, this is what happened to me. If you'd want to publish it as a guest blog, you could do it anonymously. And they ended up doing that. And the response it got was quite incredible. And even on the other side of the world, without my name attached to it, it still felt like quite a vulnerable thing to do. You know, it was sort of nerve wracking. Well, you're sharing such a deep part of yourself. Yeah. And I was reading all of the comments and it sort of got about a hundred comments fairly quickly. And so many of the comments were, this could be my story, or this is my niece, or this is my sister. This is what's happened. there was sort of 10 years between what happened to me and then when I actually published the book. Mm-hmm. But really what happened in those sort of 10 years was I started gradually writing about what happened anonymously. And then I started being asked to do a little bit of speaking, which I did. And whenever I told my sort of story, it always resonated. Mm-hmm. And then because I ended up building a career as a journalist and a writer, a few years later, a publisher got in touch with me and just said, look, I love the way you write. Would you be interested in writing a book? And if so, what would you want the book to be about? And I just said, look, if I write a book, I think I have to write it about what happened to me because every time Mm. I tell that story, it clicks with people. And so that was how it came about. And when I actually wrote the book, we had had, we'd had three children by then and our Mm. youngest, Ruby, was 
she was about one and a half when I signed the contract and she was about two when I was writing the book. And it was, I mean, I wouldn't say it was like a super easy experience because mm. having children and doing any job, it's, it's never easy. But because I love writing and because it was my story, I did actually find it quite a satisfying, creative project. Mm. And so that was sort of how I wrote it. Yeah, it did. It, it did quite well. And I still, to this day, get a lot of messages from people who, who are reading it and who can relate to it, which always breaks my heart on one level mm -hmm. because it's a pretty dark story and a dark experience in lots of ways. Yeah. Um, and I think probably because there's a mixture of topics in there from chronic illness to anxiety to perfectionism and burnout and sort of finding your purpose, people can relate to different parts of the story, even if their life doesn't match mine. And do you write a lot in the opening pages about self-doubt? What would you tell the Georgie writing that book now about self-doubt, coaching her out of it? Because I think, unfortunately, a lot of people feel self-doubt, but I think especially women and especially mothers. Yeah, so it's interesting. And I actually write in the introduction that when I signed the contract to write the book, I mean, I told my husband and I told some good friends and my family, but I almost felt embarrassed and I didn't want to tell people because I felt it was that sort of classic imposter. I was like, who am I to write a book? That actually resonated really strongly with me with this podcast, actually. I felt very seen in those pages. Yeah. And I just, it was funny because I, I really did. I was sort of paralyzed in a sense with self-doubt because I was like, why would anyone want to know what I'm writing about? And and also like, I want to be really upfront. Books are not a lucrative, it's not a lucrative proposition for most mm -hmm. authors, particularly not first time authors. So it wasn't as if I was given a huge advance, which I think would have made it even more sort of daunting. Mm -hmm. It was, it was not a huge advance, but it just felt like, why would I do this? And I guess I pushed through and I guess that afterwards when it, not just when it sold well, but I mean. It ended up Annabelle Crabb, who I'd met a few times because we'd done a couple of things together, but I did not know her well. And I'd sent her a couple of chapters and she wrote back straight away and said that she loved it. And it just blew my mind. And I think the person that was writing that book thinking, is this the worst book that's mm. ever been written? Is this the most indulgent exercise that's ever been undertaken? And I guess that's something that I, I, I just think it's self-doubt is one of those things that it just often rears its head. You, you, I, I, I don't think very many of us get to a point where it's like, oh, done. Self-doubt is done. You, know, you have doubt point. about something in particular and then you sort of overcome it. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've come to kind of just recognize that it comes in waves. And when you are in the middle of it, you sort of have to take a step back and check what's going on. Okay. Why am I feeling this way? And then you can mm. sort of move through it. And it's probably mostly because we care. I was just thinking as we're talking about this, it comes from a good place, but I guess it's just being able to manage that. So you talked about your journalism career, which really started budding after this huge life experience. And I think you would say that one of the big roles that has characterized this for you is your role at the Women's Agenda. Can you tell us a bit about starting out there and the work you still contribute there? Yeah, definitely. So I, as I said, I was working in a business magazine when I first got into journalism. So it was Business Review Weekly. And I was working there for about just under two years when then we went overseas for two years. And when we came back, we had, um, we'd had our first child and um, she was 14 months when we got back to Sydney. And I was given, I 
had my old job back four days a week, which was amazing because I loved it. But while we had been in the UK, I had started a blog because that was sort of what mums did back then when you had a little baby. And, you know, I had this sort of mental space. So I'd started a blog and I was really writing about anything and everything. Sometimes it was literally just about a disastrous trip to music group with you know, <laughs> a feeling like my baby was the only one that wanted to throw instruments, not play them. Um, but then also I was really starting to become quite interested in the difference between men and women and our sort of expectations of them. I, mm-hmm. For lots of couples, but particularly for my husband and I, we were quite astonished when we had a baby, the assumptions that somehow like I would know how to perfectly settle this person. And if he kept our baby alive for half an hour, that would sort of be worthy of a celebration. Mm. So I had this blog and this sort of gender picture was one of the themes of it. And then when I came back, I was also working at BRW magazine and I was really interested in the divide between men and women, the pay gap, the representation gap. Why are women still not represented in senior roles the way men are? And then it was actually when I was on maternity leave with our second baby, um, Lulu, that I got a sort of message out of the blue from Marina Go, who was a long-term editor and journalist, and she had started a website called Women's Agenda. And I had been following it. And in my head, it felt a bit like the perfect marriage between my blog and the business magazine. Mm. And when Marina messaged, I said to Nick, my husband, oh my gosh, if she wants, because she'd said, Can you, do you want to have a coffee? Mm. And I'd never met her before, but I had, I knew who she was and I had admired her career from afar. And I said to Nick, oh my gosh, if she wants to talk to me about a job at Women's Agenda, I'll actually die and go to heaven. And I died and I went to heaven because um, (laughs) Angela Priestley, who is now the owner and publisher of Women's Agenda, she had been the first editor and she was having her first baby. And so Marina basically said, could I come in and be the acting editor while Ange had her baby? And The real break was that Marina said to me, look, I know you've got two little children and I know that finding childcare is a nightmare. I'd really like us to think about how we could make the job work for you. And she said, I know you'll be able to do this role, but I also know it might need to look a bit different. So why don't we have a think about that? And Breath of fresh air. (laughs) Well, that was a complete game changer because it was sort of at that point where I would have thought for some employers, I would have been their absolute worst nightmare. A toddler Mm -hmm. and a baby um, didn't have family in Sydney. And yet, because I had sort of Marina's trust and support and flexibility, I was actually able to not just maintain my career, but sort of progress Mm -hmm. my career at Mm -hmm. the point where for lots of women, it actually becomes really difficult to just stay, let alone grow. Mm, It's like feeling backed in as opposed to just feeling like accepted, like No, we actually want to encourage you rather than just let you work here. Yeah. And I think because I had that trust, it meant I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time worried about what my time in the office looked like because we'd arranged it at the beginning Mm -hmm. and it it just meant I could focus on my output and the output was good. And so um, that was, you know, that was such a gift and I've stayed connected to Women's Agenda. So when I was writing my book, I was still working for Women's Agenda a couple of days a week and, and I've stayed, I, I'm still a contributor um, and I'm still really close to them and I do, I support and write for them whenever I can. And yeah, so, and I, and I love Women's Agenda. Yeah, it's an amazing publication. And as you say, such a perfect fit for you with your goals and just also your human experience as a mother moving through the world. So now if I take you back to becoming a mother for the first time, How did that go for you? Yeah. So look, it was an interesting time because, um, 
as I said, I'd had endometriosis and I had had about five surgeries. And when my husband and I got married, because of all my health conditions, I was seeing lots of specialists and they sort of said, look, you know, it's going to take you guys a long time to fall pregnant. And we were not in a mad rush to have a baby. Um, we were both 27. And of course I fell pregnant the minute we were overseas. And was that not exactly a part of the plan? No, that was no. absolutely not the plan. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not the plan. And we were going over there because Nick was studying and it was just tricky because I was pregnant and then I really struggled to get work because I was pregnant. And then I was, it was quite, it was upsetting for me because I'd obviously had the experience I did when I was 24 and 25. And then I started this job at BRW Magazine, which I absolutely loved. And I went to the UK thinking I will be able to find some sort of work that is great, whether it's legal, whether it's policy, whether it's media, and then it just didn't pan out that way. And, you know, I was literally doing any job. So I was working as a receptionist at a car dealership, doing admin, doing mail runs in like absolutely menial work. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was sort of, it was a bit of a mental shift. But what that meant was when I actually had our first baby, Izzy, I sort of had a project and mm. so, cause I'd sort of had this period of time where I was a bit lost, but also because of the breakdown that I'd had, I did have a stronger sort of connection to, I knew that I, there was still value to me as a human, even though I didn't have a job that had any value to it. Yeah. Um, not looking at that external sort of gratification as much. Yeah. And I mean, look, there were definitely, I definitely felt we were, we were living in Oxford. Um, we were surrounded by super clever people doing amazing things. And I definitely felt like, I don't know whether the fact that I'm answering phones in a car dealership, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not realizing my sort of big professional future here. And then the other thing was that because Nick was studying while we were over there, he was doing a master's. So he had contact hours at uni, but he had a lot of flexibility and autonomy. And it meant that having Izzy was, she was genuinely a 50-50 project, um, you know, because we were both around and because we were both young and inexperienced, we were sort of learning together. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's funny because, you know, Izzy's now 12 and a half, so it feels like a really long time ago, but I still, I just don't think there's any transition in life that comes close to going from no children to one child, you know, bringing a baby home. It's such a... I mean, it just literally your world is turned on its head and it doesn't matter how many people tell you before that, nothing can prepare you for it. You just have to live it. So I think it was a really big transition, but it was also, I look back on it and I just quite, I really love that it happened the way that it did. Mm -hmm. And so when does work come back into the picture for you? Like when do you return to work and is it over there or are you heading home by the time? No. Yeah. Returning? So we were heading home. And so when we got back, um, Izzy was 14 months old and that was when I started back at BRW Magazine and I started four days a week. And that was really when I was offered that job back, which was about three months before we moved back, it just, I was just so excited because I was really, I wanted to work again. Well, I mean, look, we, we needed us both to be working. Mm. but I really wanted to work. And so, yeah, we moved back and did, I was doing four days a week and look, it was, the juggle was really the only, we don't have family who live in Sydney and the only early learning position we could get for Izzy was in the city and neither of us worked in the city. And oh, that's huge. it was, it was $165 a day. And this was 12 mm. years ago or 11 and 11 years ago. Wow. 
And it was funny because, so I, you know, we would have to take her in on the bus because there was nowhere you could park. It was literally in the center of the city. And so even if it was torrentially wet, you could not, there was nowhere that you could even pull over for two minutes. So it was such a big logistical undertaking every single day. And I was doing it thinking I loved my job. I'm so lucky that I love my job and I've got a lot of flexibility. So I know that I don't have to miss pickups, but I was also like, I understand why families make the decision that they do that someone stops working because mm. we, the cost was astronomical and the challenge was huge. You know, mm-hmm. it would have been basically, anyway, we were always quite invested in looking at the longer term so that even mm. in short term, we were spending basically everything almost one of our salaries entirely went to this. We were sort of like in the long term, we'll be better off if we do this. But it really did. It was very illuminating for me about why the gap between mums and dads in the way that they work and how they work is so stark. That's the perfect segue into a big role of yours now too. You're the executive director at The Parenthood. Can you tell us a bit about that organisation and your role there? Yes, definitely. So The Parenthood is um, a not-for-profit advocacy organization and um, we've got about 78,000 parents and carers in our community um, nationally. And I have been in this role as executive director for two and a half years. And before that, I was on the board as a volunteer for about 12 months before that. And I knew about The Parenthood because they've always campaigned around better paid parental leave access to quality, affordable early childhood education and care, and the importance of family-friendly workplaces and employment practices. And so as a journalist, because I obviously I worked at Women's Agenda, but I also worked, I had a column in this in the Herald for a long time. I worked, I wrote features for Marie Claire. Um, I was always sort of, and I was writing a lot about particularly the juggle for mums and dads mm-hmm. and families. And so the parenthood had always pitched stories to me to say, you know, cause they sort of are advocating for better policies. And so that's why I was connected with, with the organization for a long time. And the opportunity to, to lead this organization came about, um, really when COVID hit and it just felt like the right time for me to take the next step. So at that point, before that, I was sort of having a very happy portfolio of professional interests. So I'd write for Women's Agenda. I had my book. I was doing some speaking work. Um, I'd do additional features for different places. And then this opportunity came up and I thought that it was the right time. Our youngest was four. Mm. And so I've been running that organization and we, we do campaign for better paid parental leave, access to affordable early education and care that is delivered by a well-paid and supported workforce and for family-friendly um, workplaces. And so it feels like this job is, even though I didn't set out with a clear plan, this job sort of feels like the culmination of a lot of the work reporting and research I did. It's now in an actual formal advocacy role. And we basically, um, try and engage with politicians and decision makers to influence the development and and shape of policies that impact families in Australia. Mm-hmm. So you've got this really big role. It's not like you're, I don't know, I don't want to put down any job because every job is important, but it's not like this sort of creative pursuit that you can then clock off from at night time. It's really big, important work that really has an impact on society. But then you're also a mother of three. How do your week, weeks pan out and how do you find that balance with your husband and your family and your work? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say I'm not working as a receptionist at a car dealership anymore. And mm-hmm. so I don't have that sort of neat <laughs> clock turn off. up for the shift, clock on, clock off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's, it's a big juggle. Like it, it just is. And, and if I'm really honest, and I've said this to lots of people this year, most weeks, the most stressful part of my life is, mm. is making sure we've got all of the bases covered. So where are all the girls? What have they got on? Who, who, how, how can, what's my work? What's Nick's work? How do we make that work? Mm-hmm. And it just is a huge and constant juggle. Like, I mean, it's such a um, cliched word, but, but that mm. is actually what it is. And we have had different arrangements in place um, that have, have worked, but definitely the, the last two and a half years that I've been in this role, it's definitely the, the biggest career. It's the biggest mm. job I've held and it really is a 24-7 proposition because mm. a lot of what I do is media um, a lot of work happens outside of sort of standard hours. So, um, I'm really lucky. Um, and, and, you know, I use lucky recognizing that lots of women in particular describes themselves as lucky when actually what they're mm. saying is they've been talented and they've worked hard and they have opportunities have, have come about because of that. And mm. I would definitely say that I fit into that category. There's no doubt that I've been really hardworking and that I am, um, competent and good at this job. Mm. But equally, I do have flexibility. Um, and, and flexibility doesn't mean, you know, it, I still have, I'm often available on television early in the morning or late mm. at night or on the weekends when an announcement's made, you know, there are weekends when I have just worked back to back. So flexibility isn't as if I've got all these open spaces where I don't have to do anything, but I do have flexibility so that if in a particular week I need to be doing the school pickup a couple of afternoons, that's fine. And that's what mm. we'll do um, because I just have to make sure I get my job done. Um, as I said, when, when we had our first baby, she, it was a real 50, 50 project. And there's a lot of research that shows the caring pattern that is set in the first year of a child's life persists over the course of their life, which is oh, one of really the interesting. And that's actually one of the reasons why we campaign around paid parental leave and really mm. want dads mm. to be taking extended leave because if the proportion of care is that dad takes two weeks off when the baby's born and mum has 12 months off, that's sort of the proportion of caring responsibility that will hold. And that's mm-hmm. not to say that it always holds. That there are definitely families where they break that pattern. Um but we know the evidence is pretty clear that if, if dads are engaged in that first year, it, it carries over. Mm-hmm. And we're more it, aware of the invisible load. Yeah, completely. Mm-hmm. And also it's just one of those things, looking after a baby or an infant or a toddler is the only way that you get comfortable looking after a baby or an infant mm-hmm. or a toddler. You just have to do it. And so that, I think that's why the evidence is pretty clear that the more you do it, the better you get at it. So if, if one person is doing it all the time, they're just going to be much more comfortable doing it. And therefore mm. that's the default that you fall to. Um, so we had an unusual experience in that our first baby, because Nick was studying, we did have a much, we, we literally did have a 50, 50 scenario. When we had our second baby, Nick was working, um, as he was working in a public hospital. He had absolutely no autonomy. He was working a long way from home. Mm. He was working every second weekend. He literally was not around. Oh, and wow. 
if he hadn't, if that had been our first child, and we've talked about this a lot, if that had been our first baby, I think our family life would be markedly different to how it is. Mm. That's such an interesting reflection. How did that feel for you having that second postpartum with less support? And I don't like using the word support because obviously both parents are the parents of that child, but you'd had this real 50-50 experience for the first child. And then the second, it was so different. How did you feel emotionally through that time? It was really, really um, difficult. You know, so it was funny because the second baby felt easier and I I had had a pretty horrendous and traumatic birth the first time and the second birth was so straightforward and I, you know, I literally woke up the next morning feeling so excited because I could walk properly. I I just felt 500% better and I also, I think I had been, our middle um, daughter, Lulu, came. She ended up coming almost three weeks early. So it sort of caught me by surprise. She came early. It was such an easy birth. And then I just felt I was on this high because I'd been quietly really freaking out about if I had the first birth again and when I didn't have that. And so, and then the other thing is when you've got a little tiny baby and it's not your first baby, suddenly a toddler feels much harder than, mm-hmm. than a new mm. And so it was this weird thing where the actual caring for the little baby part was easier, Mm. but I also had a toddler and we lived in a two bedroom apartment and we didn't have family nearby and Nick was literally at work the whole time. And that was really difficult. It was really isolating, but that was also why when Marina Go got in touch with me and offered me this sort of opportunity to to start working. And I went back to work when Lulu was about eight months old, which was Mm. earlier than I did with Izzy. Um, but I sort of needed that more because of the fact that I was carrying the, the lion's share of, Mm. of our sort of family rearing. And so when it comes to burnout, this is obviously a big conversation now, I think post COVID, it's also a big conversation for working parents, but I think even more so for someone that went through something so profound at the age of 24, how do you set boundaries at work and at home and avoid burnout? or manage burnout? Yeah, look, that's a great question. And I would say that managing boundaries and, and setting boundaries is something that I am really working on. Um, I am definitely a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something that I'm naturally very good at. I, and I think that can, I, I would describe myself as someone who, who tends to be people pleasing. I don't like saying no. I don't mm. like disappointing people. Um, and that has definitely come at at the detriment of my own sort of health, well-being at different times. So I'm really conscious that it's not a luxury. It's actually critical. And I think also as the children, as our girls are getting older, it it just, it just shifts in terms of Mm. it's not physically relentless anymore. I'm not sleep deprived, but the emotional needs of the kids are really significant, um, Mm -hmm. logistical demands. And therefore I've got to be much more strategic about my time because if I if I give everything to work then I've got nothing left for the girls and Mm. then and so it is it's sort of a constant work in progress and I would say I still have got a lot of room for improvement Mm. but because of the sort of spectacular breakdown that I had like because it was so bad I have stayed pretty um good at really recognizing when physically I'm starting to not feel good and that's the point at which I tend to uh, look at what I'm doing. What are my options? How can I make sure I look after myself? Um, 
because I sort of know that if you end up, if I end up physically being broken, then I'm no good to anyone. And, and you've seen the ramifications as a 24 year old with no kids. And now you've obviously got bigger job responsibilities, bigger parenting responsibilities. Yes. That's huge. As much as that obviously would have been, you know, such a full on and traumatic experience. I guess that's a great silver lining, right? That you can now protect your energy and you've got more perspective on that. Yes, definitely. And I think that one of the things that for me was probably, I, I, my theory is that if I didn't have the physical illness that I did, particularly Crohn's disease, if I didn't have that, I probably wouldn't have fallen apart as badly mm. as I did mm. because I, and I, I possibly then could have just teetered along the, the sort of verge of burnout my whole life. Mm. Whereas because I actually fell apart and that was in large part because my physical health had just been so bad and I had neglected it. It, it did force a reset. I mm. couldn't get away with tweaking. I sort of had to re-establish what I, how I lived. Um, mm -hmm. and so that was probably, and I think that's part of it because coming out of that breakdown, I just had to set up my life in a different way. And that has held largely, although I do laugh because I'm also a glutton for punishment and I don't make okay. sensible life choices. So <laughs> you're someone that's so aware of the challenges that working parents face. If you could solve one problem in Australia tomorrow that supports working parents, what would that be? See, I have to choose two. The two <laughs> are, so at the Parenthood, we did some research because our mission is to make Australia the best place in the world to be a parent. And the reason that that is our mission is really deliberate because it's only when parents and caregivers are supported that children can thrive. So this idea that we can care about children but not care about parents just doesn't hold. So we know that parents and carers need support to be able to raise their children and for their children to have all of the opportunities to thrive. Now, in Australia, we have got, we have just not invested in what we describe as the bridges and roads that parents need to move between work and home. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean like physically move between work and home, but so we've, we commissioned some research. So if we want to make Australia the best place in the world to be a parent, what are the policies that we need? So we commissioned a really big piece of research that we published at the beginning of 2021 that looked at that. And it came back with a few key findings. And one of them is a, a world-class parent, paid parental leave scheme. And what our research showed is that the best policy in the world would be 12 months at a replacement wage that's shared between parents. And if there's only one parent, they get the full 52 weeks. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is having a universal system of totally affordable, high-quality early childhood education and care. Now, with those two policies in place, we are building the infrastructure that families need to be able to move between their caring and their work responsibilities. At the moment, we don't have that. We've got really inadequate paid parental leave and we've got really unaffordable and really inaccessible early learning. And the combination of that is it's really difficult for families to just stay connected to paid work. And, you know, my example 11 years ago is, is a perfect one of it was really only because I had I had an established relationship with an employer that had some flexibility. Mm. My husband and I were both on the same page and able to, at that point, absorb the financial sort of loss. And we had a child who was really thriving in that, in that environment and was willing mm. to sort of do, the bus ride was not traumatic for her. But any one of those things that had been different, it would have been really difficult for both of us to, to keep working. 
And if we hadn't have kept working, then you sort of cut down the opportunities that you've got. So I know that they are the evidence-based policies that we need, and that will literally change the lives of, it will change the lives of working parents, but it's particularly working mums because Mm. at the moment, women do, mums in particular do undertake the vast majority of, of the caring. And that's because that's what our policies sort of perpetuate. And Mm. the men and women in Australia, despite wanting to be like a lot of couples approach family life, wanting it to be a sort of shared pursuit. But what happens is you have a baby and then you're suddenly looking at what are the policies around you and what are your options? And you realize Mm. that the, the options are really that one of you takes the caring track and the other one takes the breadwinning track. And that's not actually necessarily what mums and dads want. It's not necessarily what sets children up best. And there are certain, there are lots of instances where that works really well for everyone. But Mm. we know on the whole, not enough children are having access to the early learning that really sets them up to get to school and thrive. And for mums in particular, it's really difficult to maintain attachment to paid work. And if you're not attached to paid work, you've got no super, you've got fewer options. And that's why we've got, you know, women over 55 in Australia, it's the fastest growing group of Australians who experience homelessness. And it's because they're spending their lives caring and the price they're paying for that is poverty or retiring with absolutely no financial security. So they're the changes I want because I know actually, and again, the evidence is really clear that mums and dads and children do really well in terms of their health and mental outcomes when you've got a decent paid parental leave scheme. Well, the work you're doing is amazing. So that's a great answer. And that's a scary stat about homelessness among over 55-year-old women. Yes. You are the mother of three daughters, which I imagine in your line of work and with what you care about probably feels like quite a big responsibility. If there's one piece of advice you could give to your daughters around career and motherhood, what would that be? You know, and it's funny because we had one of those mornings this morning where the wheels fell off and (laughs) I was not feeling like a particularly good parent this morning. And, you know, I I like to be honest about that because Mm. parenting and raising children is really messy. It is not perfect. It is, it's sort of the ultimate exercise in letting go. I mean, there are absolutely things that you can control and that you should control as a parent, but there's a whole lot that you can't and, and you sort of at the whim of that. And I guess I worry that I don't model this well enough, but what I would love for our girls to absorb is that things don't have to be perfect mm. and that it's okay for things to be messy and it's okay to make mistakes. I think that I would love for our girls to have, I would like the infrastructure to be in place so that they are much freer to make decisions when the time comes about mm. what works for them and if they've got a partner and their partner. Mm. Um, I'd, ra- I'd really like them to not be sort of forced into different tracks. But I also think they are really lucky because they've grown up with two parents who get a huge amount of sort of purpose from the work that we do. Um, and we also do, notwithstanding the fact that at times it, it hasn't been shared, but we do actually, and particularly now that my husband is sort of through his medical training, he's got a bit more capacity to be flexible and autonomous. Mm. We are able to better share it. But I think that is probably, I would want them to approach family life with um, a partner that they can share it with. 
And yeah, that's such a huge one that you're trying to lay down that advocacy work to actually remove some of those hurdles so that some of this advice hopefully will actually be redundant because the world will actually work better for them at the time if they do choose to be parents. Georgie, this has been really insightful. I love the work you do. I'm so stoked that you're a guest on the podcast. If people want to find you and the work that you do, where should they go? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome to chat. Um, so I would encourage everyone to look up the parenthood. Um, we are on all of the various social media channels. And if you just search the parenthood, you'll find us. Sign up, join our um, list. Our theory of change is that when parents' voices are represented, then we get better decisions for parents and families. And so what we try and do is give voice to our members so that they have an opportunity to speak to decision makers about issues that are, that are important to them. And individual parents can't necessarily affect change of the mm. scale that we need. And certainly I can't as an individual, even as a very passionate, determined individual, <laughs> as one person, I'm really limited in what I can do. But as a collective, we're actually much more powerful because we're harder to ignore. And so I would encourage everyone to look up The Parenthood and follow us. I am also on Instagram and um, on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. So if you look up Georgie Dent. And I mean, if you're interested in the burnout, mental health, resilience, well-being piece, then my book Breaking Badly is still available to buy. And it's also, um, I did record an audio book. So if you're into that, you can find it on Audible. Which can be actually a great option for working parents, actually, now that you say that. I actually wish that I did get the Audible, but I'm loving reading it. But it's probably just going to take me 10 years longer than if I downloaded the Audible <laughs> now that I am a parent. Thank you so much, Georgie. Thank you so much for having me and um, congratulations on setting this up. It's no <laughs> small feat to have a creative project while you're also juggling a little human. So well done. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. In acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, each episode, I'll be doing a shout out to an Indigenous business or charity doing great things. This week, it's Mabu Mabu, a restaurant in the heart of Melbourne. Mabu Mabu is a saying in the Torres Strait that means help yourself. Norni Barrow is the head chef and business owner of Mabu Mabu. Originally from Murr Island in the Torres Strait, Norni has been a professional chef for over 20 years. Norni is on a mission to put Indigenous ingredients in kitchens across Australia. They want people to be using, eating and celebrating Indigenous ingredients every day. I've eaten at their wonderful Federation Square restaurant in Nam or Melbourne, and I highly recommend you do too next time you find yourself there or if you're a local. That's it for today. See you next time. <laughs>